The Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview today. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with a podcast for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy Balance and Fall SIG, interviewing William Padula, a neurooptometrist who I was delighted to meet through the, um, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine a couple years back. And this year we collaborated on a symposium for ACRM conference, their first ever virtual conference. And the reason that I invited Bill to talk to our audience is because he his work ties in with an area that I have long felt was underserved and not well addressed with the stroke and brain injury populations that as a clinician I've treated for, oh, about a quarter century now. So with that, um, I'm going to hand the microphone over to William Padula, let him tell you a little bit about his background and the developments he's made that I hope we'll see a lot more of in our practice to help prevent falls and improve balance for people with neurologic disorders. Well, Julie, thank you very much for inviting me to do this podcast to reach out to your members. It's, uh, it's great to share this information with you. And I'm also, um, I'd just like to state to the members that uh, I'm, I'm a strong advocate of physical therapy and the directions that the organization has taken physical therapy. I've worked with uh, both physical, occupational, and speech therapists for close to 40 years now and had some great experiences with a number of them. Some of the ones that are kind of the hallmark in your field too. And I'll mention particularly one named Dr. Christine Nelson, who was uh, well known in her field in neurodevelopmental therapy, who I spent many years working with at her clinic in Cuernavaca, as well as at the Institute here in Guilford, Connecticut. So I'd like to share a little bit of information with you and your audience about neurooptometric rehabilitation, for which um, when I first got involved in optometry, there was no such thing as neurooptometric rehabilitation. There was no consideration for vision problems for anyone with fall risk or with a neurological problem. I did a fellowship at Yale at the Gazelle Institute of Child Development. And when I left there, uh, I was in Connecticut. I wanted to give something back to the community, the greater community. So I wrote up a grant and got funded to open up uh, the first not-for-profit low vision clinic in the state of Connecticut. So I got all these optical devices, you know, telescopes, microscopes, magnifiers, closed circuit televisions, and opened up with the purpose of serving people with glaucoma, macular degeneration, you know, other types of vision impairments that are in the more traditional sense. And I'll never forget the first day walking into the clinic and all I saw were patients with stroke, traumatic brain injury, kids with cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis. And at the end of the day, I was a bit frustrated. I walked out to my clinic coordinator and she, I said, what are you trying to do to us? This is a low vision clinic. She said, well, you should have thought of that before you opened up in an Easter Seal Rehabilitation Center, because that's all you're going to see. And, you know, for the next six months, at first, I dreaded the day of going into this clinic because I had no exposure to these patients in the, in the sense of treatment. But I, I soon learned that they were trying to tell a story. 
And each one would come in, some had vision impairments, but you know, a person with a stroke and macular degeneration and glaucoma that has limited sight, the last thing they wanna do is pick up a New York Times and read it with a hemiparesis in one hand and literally falling out of their chair or perhaps with pusher syndrome and a variety of other types of problems, they're trying to gain control against gravity. So I dug really deep about what I learned about vision, how it evolves in child development, how vision really emanates from an action system. Arnold Gazelle said that. And what he learned is that the visual process organizes itself with regards to an action-based system against gravity. Now, he was so ahead of his time, even his colleagues didn't understand it then and they still don't appreciate what he had to say. However, I began going back to his work and then digging into research from other researchers of the 20th century. And I came upon some very interesting research by a researcher by the name of Trevarthan, Colwyn Trevarthan. And he was studying primates at the University of Oxford then came over to Harvard and then finally University of Edinburgh. And he, he was looking at these primates and their visual process and how they functioned very differently than the way other clinicians and researchers were. Hmm. And he recognized that there were two visual processes. And as I began to review his work and listening to these patients, suddenly things began to unfold. And I was beginning to recognize that the patients were saying similar things in similar groupings. You know, patients were talking about how they were experiencing misinformation and distortion about their spatial environment. Not so much that they couldn't see the television set, but things were just not matching up with what they were feeling in relationship to what they were seeing. So do you mind if I just tell you a little bit about what Trevarthan had to say? And I would really appreciate that, Bill. And, and what we'll make sure to, uh, to do with this is get the link to the research that you're referencing to make sure that's up there for people who want to learn more, because this is pretty fascinating stuff. Sure, yeah, well, most of it is on my website, so I can give an easy link to that. That's great. So Trevarthan, he, he was looking at these chimpanzees and recognizing that they had two systems, one of which he called the focal process. And he identified this system with um, detailed discrimination, purposes of identifying objects. It's in the present moment. It's what you're using right now to look at the video screen to identify my face. And it's, it's very much around um, detail orientation. It's conscious and it evolves as a second visual process. The first one that we're born with is not the focal process. I've never met a kid yet, four weeks of age, that wants to pick up a newspaper and read it. <laughs> what are they trying to do? They're trying to gain control of their arms and their legs, trying to gain control of organization of posture upright against gravity. And it's this first visual process that he called the ambient visual process, or which I call the spatial visual process. 
And this part of the visual process comes from our peripheral visual system. And it's fascinating because we can't think in this process. It's the part of the visual process that precedes conscious organization. And matter of fact, Trevarthan said it's pre-conscious, it's not conscious. And it's delivering information through a different part of our neurological uh, network from pre-retinal ganglionic cells from the peripheral visual system. And instead of delivering it all the way back up to the occipital cortex, it drops off a major amount of this information down to superior colliculus, where information is coming up from uh, the spinal cord, spinal tectal tract, the spinal thalamic uh, uh, tract, and many of these other uh, tracks that are delivering information from proprioceptors, trying to give feed forward to the prefrontal lobes, the parietal lobes, and even the occipital lobe to pre-program these processes or these areas of the brain with spatial format before looking at detail. And it's here that this spatial information comes down from the peripheral visual system to give information about vertical and horizontal lines in our peripheral vision, which match up with what the proprioceptors are trying to give the brain information about what it feels like to be upright against gravity. And then this information goes to the, the frontal lobe, the supplementary eye fields, where the spatial information is given over to more higher processing function for intent of motor movement. And it's brought over to the occipital cortex to preliminary binocular fields to gain control of alignment of the eyes prior to image recognition. And it's delivered into 99% of the cortex to pre-program the cortex with spatial information prior to higher consciousness. So there was an interesting um, piece of research by a researcher by the name of Neighbor back in the 1980s, where he did um, stereotactic lesions to the superior colliculus of mock monkeys. And what happened immediately was they developed an exotropia. One eye turned out. Here he's, he's going after a midbrain and he's developing a challenge to binocularity. And this is totally against what we think about in terms of a top-down function in organization of seeing, let's pull the eyes into alignment, let's work hard to make this happen. And it's all fitting into place if you really think about the development of the child. So now what we found out is this information is matched and it delivers information about spatial context before conscious attention. And now at one moment in time, a person has a stroke, a lesion, a traumatic brain injury, or some of the type of neurological event that starts to interact or cause compromise, not with the higher seeing part of the brain, but with that aspect of the brain that is trying to bring forward information about spatial context. And what happens? All this information is mismatched at different areas of the brain, and it can actually start at the level of midbrain and perhaps even brainstem, where there's also a visual context coming in. 
And this mismatch starts to create imbalances and distortion in spatial feed forward direction to frontal lobes, parietal lobes, and occipital lobe. And now this person, let's say 50 years of age, has a stroke. And now suddenly all the past experiences that utilize spatial information for context prior to conscious identification of detail, now there's a mismatch. And like one day I was in the clinic in New Haven at this Easter Seal Rehabilitation Center. And I had begun to notice something very interesting that stroke patients that had a hemipresis were all leaning away from the affected side and that they all had a hemipresis with compression on the side of the body where the hemipresis was with elongation on the side of the body where they shifted and were weight bearing if they tried to stand up. And I started to think about this in terms of, well, if Trevarthan is right, and we have two visual processes, one which is organizing the context of field, not in terms of seeing the field, but in terms of matching up organization of this kind of spatial domain that we all have over us, like blowing up a balloon to match up with what proprioception is equalizing from medial-lateral context and uh, anterior-posterior concept of information of what it feels like to be erect against gravity. And now for one moment in time, with a collapse of spatial context from a hemiparesis, now I'm doing the seated, but I think you can kind of get the, the greater experience of what I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah, I, I see the compression on your, yeah. uh, you've got your left side where mm -hmm. you're in a kind of a, a abnormal posturing, flexion posturing of the arm. And you're definitely side bent to that side where I can see it's shortened. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's it's a good visual. So we'll, we'll, we've got that in there. This compression in space, spatial context of the body essentially causes the spatial visual process to match up. And there's a tremendous compression of visual pre-conscious space. So when this compression occurs, it compresses like this on one side, but if I had a long balloon in my hand and I held my hand like this and compressed it, all the air would expand on the other side of the balloon. And that's exactly what you see in posture. I see. And so uh, the visual to go along with that is uh, the long balloon. You put your two hands both on that left-hand side where that was the hemiparetic side to squeeze. And of course that would, uh, balloon up the other the other side. Exactly. So I began to be suspecting that this might be happening when one day I walked into the clinic and I was waiting for the next patient to come in. And here came a man about 48 years of age walking into my exam room with a quad cane in his right hand and a hemiparesis in the left hand hobbling and moving the left leg instead of bringing it forward, swinging it out high and around in a very characteristic fashion, like we see many of the patients walk with a hemiparesis. And he sat down in the chair and I greeted him and I said, how can I help you? And he started to laugh and he said, how can you help me? He said, you can straighten the room out. And he's sitting there like this and he's moving his hand like that. 
I thought for a second, why doesn't everybody see the room slanted? But this man did. So he talked a little bit and I said, when did it start to slant? He said, when I had my stroke. When I finally became conscious enough, uh, the therapists were trying to get me upright. He said, I kept falling to the right. I said, over and over again, he, I kept telling everybody the room slanted. And the therapist would put a mirror up in front of me and I would struggle to get myself straight by the mirror. But the moment they would take the mirror away, I would go back into this strange posture and everything was slanted. And it was at that moment that he confirmed what I was beginning to realize. That what Trevarthan had looked at and Leibowitz and Post and, and Held and Hind and many of the other famous visual scientists of the 20th century all began saying the same thing at the same time. They began looking at the visual process not as one visual system, like we're taught in optometry school, ophthalmology, PT, occupational therapy, nursing, education, I don't care what it is. We're all talked about light going in, it's a camera back up to the brain. It doesn't work that way at all. The brain is looking through these two cameras and it has two processing systems that it has to balance and maintain this balance. Because if we compromise the spatial process, what happens is the world becomes focalized, a massive detail, and the spatial context by which we match information between the visual spatial con uh, process and the proprioceptive base of support becomes compromised. And that's when we start to have significant balance problems following a neurological event or even aging. And you can do the therapy with these patients. And I've seen physical therapists make great strides in rebalancing the spatial process. But I've also had many patients come in a year, two years, five years, 10 years after the therapy, still having the same balance problems until I diagnose something called visual midline shift syndrome. So this is where it began to get interesting for me, at least professionally. As I began to see these patients I just, I, and listened to what the researchers were telling me, as well as what hundreds of these patients were now beginning to explain to me in this little clinic in New Haven, which had now turned from a low vision clinic into something that I had no name for. The name neurooptometry wasn't even there yet. And I was just trying to feel my way through how am I gonna serve these people? So I knew optics well enough to understand that a prism can compress space and expand space depending upon how you position the prism. So I began to think about what I was seeing and what I was hearing from just a few patients, mostly what I was seeing from these people. And I began to think about applying a prism called a yoked prism, two prisms in this position in the same orientation. Usually a prism is prescribed by an optometrist or an ophthalmologist if there is a strabismus. Let's say one eye is turned out and the other eye is looking straight ahead. They take a prism, they measure the deviation and they shift the image out to where that eye is pointing and hope that the brain will capture the image and pull them together. It doesn't always happen that way. So I began to think about the fact that we'd have to use prism in a different way 
in what is now called yoked prism, two prisms designed with the same power in the same direction that could be positioned anywhere in a 360 degree mm. position within a set of frames. So as I began to explore this, I realized one side of the prism has the ability to compress space and the other side expands space. I had some very interesting experiences where people all of a sudden started to weight bear on their affected side. And this is five, 10, 15, 20 years after all therapy had stopped. So then I began calling in therapists because there were therapists at the Easter sale. And I said, look at this, look at, look at what's just happened. And everybody was amazed, but we didn't even have a term for it yet. So I started you know, talking to the physicians and they all looked at me as if I had two heads saying, well, it's interesting, prove it. Well, I said, well, isn't that enough? And they said, well, no, you have to publish research on that. And that's what I did. So I began to, I put on the hat now, not as a clinician, but as a researcher. And I started to study the, this as from a researcher perspective, designing um, experimental design with a control group and an experimental group and applying PRISM in a way in which it affected the experimental group. And so I published several papers on this, but as it turns out, I've given a name to it and it's called visual midline shift syndrome. Now we probably all have some aspect of a shift of visual midline and visual midline can shift in a medial lateral manner. It can shift anterior posterior, and in most cases, it's a combination thereof. So when you watch people walk, and my favorite laboratory is just going to the supermarket now, at least in the days when we used to have crowds at the supermarket, and just watching people walk, you'll see some very interesting postural dysfunctions, and I relate it to what's going on with the visual process. I've seen thousands of patients now and I've developed an instrument called the Neuroptrek, where a person can walk on a gate mat and it literally measures the imbalances. And I've created algorithms that now take the imbalances of pressure point and vector forces. And this information goes into the algorithms and it actually pre predicts the direction, the axis of the prism and a, and a relative amount of the prism so that the clinician can then make the wise choice of having a standardization and quantifying these imbalances and utilizing their experience to prescribe the actual prism to rehabilitate the person, hopefully then in conjunction with physical therapy and rehabilitation. So I wanna now just take a, a moment and state that none of this would have happened had I not been working with physical and occupational therapists. Because going from the research that I had discovered from Trevarathan, there was a gap in my knowledge in understanding the motor function and organization of posture upright against gravity. And if it wasn't for working with you and other people like yourselves in physical therapy and occupational therapy, I've mentioned Dr. Christine Nelson's name, I don't know that I would have ever made this jump, but what it did for me is it clarified an understanding of visual processing, not as a separate entity 
two eyeballs on a shelf, correct the acuity, eyes are healthy. Okay, there's nothing wrong with your eyes, 2020 acuity. It enabled me to see that what we have to do is we need to create this as an interprofessional model, not as some type of isolated concept of an optometrist, a neurooptometrist prescribing prisms and a physical therapist and, and or an occupational therapist working with motor function. It doesn't work that way. Yes, that you've said a mouthful and I, I, this is a good place for me to just mention two things. One is that the gate mat uh, predictive uh, design that you brought forward, you actually brought that to ACRM's launch pad and won an innovation award. So congratulations on I that. Did. Thank you and, very much. Would you like to see the nice um, award that I received? Oh, always. Yes, please. It's right behind me on the shelf. So I want to thank Launchpad and ACRM for this beautiful award. Uh, just yesterday. So thank you. Yes, wonderful. And the other thing I wanted to mention is mm -hmm. how much when I first went to one of the talks you gave a couple years back at ACRM, the thing that resonated with me is the ongoing um, clients as well as research subjects with brain injury and stroke who, even in a metropolitan city with a lot of excellent healthcare, because um, I'm in the Chicagoland area, it was it's really difficult. And thinking back of my whole career, when somebody has visual issues, I feel that so often they really have not gone uh, through the right amount of assessment to get what they needed. And um, I was recruiting subjects for uh, Steve Kramer's strong study when I listened to your talk. And there were people going through their rehabilitation who kept getting sent to low vision centers and um, one after another, they would get more discouraged because no matter where they went, they would basically get an eye exam and be told that they were fine. And it's like, well, it's not the eyes. <laughs> That's the issue. And they have the, those balance issues. Um, and that's actually the time when I started to reach out to you um, that led to us collaborating, which, which I've just been delighted. And I, I learned so much every time we, we get together. So. Thank you. It's mutual. So, so that's a little bit of your background. Um, mm -hmm. And I know you have some videos that you, yeah. you use in the coursework that you give, as well as that you're working with, I think it's specifically occupational therapy to develop a program for pre-licensure. And if there's more information about that, that's also of interest. Um, but yeah, I'd like to just hear a little bit more. Certainly. Well, it was in the early, uh, around 2000, that my optometric office in Guilford, which had two examining lanes, a therapy, small therapy room, and a, one central hallway was just grown too small. I could only fit one wheelchair in the office at a time. And my practice had shifted over from, you know, primarily pediatric in general with some uh, low vision and neurological care to practically 100% of the time of working in this area that now was called neurooptometry. Um, and so I opened up an institute and the institute is here in Guilford and I took over a 12,000 square foot building and that's where I am today. And we see people from all over the world. 
who fly in with neurological problems and visual problems. And I work in conjunction with physicians, neurologists, physiatrists, PTs, OTs, speech therapists, et cetera. Um, it was somewhere around 1989 that I kept coming home to my wife and saying, you know, you're not going to believe what I saw today. And I guess one night at dinner, she said to me, uh, anybody else you talk to out there about this? She <laughs> was trying to give me a gentle hint. So I mentioned a few names and she had suggested, why don't you get together? So I called everybody up and I said, I'm flying into Chicago. And we met at the Knickerbocker Hotel on January 11th, I think it was 1989. And we just met in a conference room for the day and talked about working with neurological kids and adults. And it was such a fascinating day. We did it again and again. And pretty soon we had other optometrists, psychologists, PTs, OTs, all wanting to join this group. And that's what started the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association, which is multidisciplinary, of which I was the founding president. And so I invite you and your, um, your colleagues to consider joining NORA. It's a wonderful group that meets once a year, this year virtually, and we share information about vision and neuromotor problems for the purpose of, uh, of uh, interprofessional uh, rehabilitation of these clients. So um, I do have some videos and I'd love to share them with you. And these are videos that I've taken over the years. I have hundreds of these videos. People that came um, from many walks of life, many different ages uh, and great distances, all with their own stories, their own tales uh, about dysfunction and what had happened to them through the rehabilitation process. So I'm gonna to relate to you their stories as we're, as I'm showing you the videos. And I'm just gonna to relate to you what they said. So I mean this uh, as no criticism of any profession and any professional. I, I only bring this out to hopefully develop a greater experience that we can all share information and come, try to come together for the purpose of serving our patients and clients. Okay. Yes, very good. And um, while you're loading the video, I'll just say that um, being somebody who was reaching out to you for uh, help for uh, people that were not getting what services they really needed, um, the recency and the breakthroughs that you're bringing to the field, um, I think that's probably part of why it's not systemized and a lot of very excellent healthcare systems and programs, um, it's it's a big system. It's slow to, to adopt and change. And I definitely see that myself. So looking well, forward to it. Well, it's interesting where it all got, come from. Uh, now, you know, my, I'm getting referrals from neurologists and physiatrists, PTs and OTs, uh, ophthalmologists and optometrists, whereas that wasn't the case originally. It was more word of mouth or PTs and OTs were the primary source. So um, the level of acceptance has changed dramatically. So let me see if I can do this screen sharing. Okay. I think I share the screen. Now I, oh, I see the video. Okay, so now I'm, I'm gonna just talk about this young man first of all, before I run it. He came to me, um, 
So, so just really quickly, Bill, um, we're looking at a video, and I'm going to guess it's your one of your offices. And this there's was a my original office, uh, Julie, what I moved out of. So you can see the central hallway. Yeah. And this young man, um, uh, he had an experience where he was he was going to school at night, and in the daytime he was working in a boatyard, not far from my office, and he sold a boat. He was a salesperson. The following day, he went to the backyard where the boat was with a colleague who had a forklift. And they picked up this 3,000-pound boat, and they were bringing it to the front yard, and he was walking next to the boat when the hydraulics failed and dropped this boat, not on his head, but on his right shoulder and neck, 3,000 pounds. They got him out from under the boat. Ambulance came, took him to the hospital, and he was in great pain. They did CAT scans and MRIs, came out negative, no broken bones, no brain injury. They told him to go home. And the following morning, this is how he got out of bed. He kept falling to the right. He kept reporting there was something wrong with his vision. He went from one doctor to the next. And he's... He's leaning on that wall. Heavily on the wall. He, his word was his best friend was a wall on the right side. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put it on hold for just one second. He came in with his fiance and she stepped out of the room for a minute. And in the middle of the exam, he said to me, I'm about to break my engagement. You know, here I'm a total stranger. I think what he was saying to me is, you're my last hope. I've been like this for a year and a half. He took himself off the road, even though eye doctors told him that there was nothing wrong with his eyes. And they had 20-20 acuity, healthy eyes, and he should get on with his life. Huh. I saw the medical records. One doctor actually put down malingering. And he took himself off the road. He said he was breaking his engagement because he couldn't drive. He dropped out of school. He didn't know if he could ever hold a job. So after he got up from, I finished the exam, I brought him into the hallway and this is what, I took a video camera and this is what you saw. Here I'm handing him yoked prism glasses. He's readjusting. That's the first time I saw his head go all the way up. <laughs> this is the first time he's walked without a wall on the right side or someone holding him up in a year and a half. He wanted okay. to wear these funny looking glasses for the rest of his life. I told him no. <laughs> I gave him a pair of these funny looking glasses for two hours a day and another pair of glasses with lower prisms that act as a retainer. He wasn't happy with that, but he followed my recommendations. And I'm going to stop it here for a second. A year and three months later, he kept getting better. And the last time I saw him, he was no longer wearing the very thick 18 diopter prisms. I prescribed for him one diopter prism, and I've never seen him since. So this was a rather dramatic case, still one of my favorite videos to show you. But it documents what happens when there's no broken bones, 
no brain injury in the sense of an MRI or a CAT scan demonstrating that there's a lesion interfering with some aspect of vision. This was truly a visual midline shift syndrome, a compression of space on one side of his body, the left. And even though it didn't show up as a hemiparesis, it showed up in terms of a compression of space. And when there there's a compression of space on one side, the midline gets pulled away from that compression. So his brain was saying that his midline was shifted about over to where I'm lining it up with my right shoulder so that he would lean into this right side falling into the wall. So I have a number of these type of videos. What I'd like to do is show you a different video. That's great. And while you're queuing that up, Bill, I wanted to ask, so as with, uh, you know, the boat falling on his shoulder, he likely fell and had a concussive event. Um, would you say that there were white matter track changes likely that affected the superior right. colliculus? I would believe so. You know, if we had DTI in those years, it probably would have demonstrated a diffuse axonal shearing or you know, some, some type of diffuse axonal injury. And, and, and my, my other question about that case is um, his, a lot of focus these days um, and a lot of good breakthroughs have also been occurring with the vestibular system and assessment and rehabilitation. In this case, were there any vestibular issues that had resolved or had, had also needed to be treated and resolve? He was evaluated for a vestibular. He was given vestibular therapy along with physical therapy. And that's the way he continued to walk. So, so when you saw him, it was after all of those had, had gotten him. Okay. And so I saw him a year and a half. He had been done with his therapy probably within six months to eight months. And he was left alone. There was nothing else going on in his life in terms of some type of rehabilitation. So that's what makes this particular video and case study such an interesting one. I, I'm gonna show you others where, you know, you can see the relationship of vestibular and you can see other aspects where the PT and the vestibular therapies and, are very much needed. But this was a true case of VMSS. This woman um, lived on in the West she got up one morning to uh, go to work and she was T-boned by an 18-wheeler doing about 55 miles an hour. Uh, fractured neck, fractured back. And um, this is how she came to the Institute. What I'd like you, not only is you can see the compression, the slight drift to the side when she's walking, what I'd like you to pay attention to particularly is the um, increased high abnormal postural tone. Did you want to see that again, or was that pretty apparent? Yeah, um, I would actually appreciate seeing it one more time. Sure, let's go back and we'll take another look at this again. Just walk back again, please. So you can notice the high shoulders, the raised shoulders. The arms are quite rigid. A lot of tone in the, in the back. 
She falls onto each step. Legs are very rigid. Sit down in the chair. There's an anterior shift and a, a left visual midline shift. So she's kind of side bending to the right and both hands are kind of in a claw. It's kind of interesting. And she almost started to do an abnormal posturing with the, the left arm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna treat her with an asymmetrical yoke prism. She not only has visual midline shift syndrome, she has something called post-trauma vision syndrome, which is another part of my research, which is a more global compromise to the spatial digital process, producing a wide variety of binocular problems um, and compression of space. The prism is now affecting the spatial visual process. And I want you to pay particular attention to what happens with the shoulders, the postural tone, the effect on weight shift, Notice what happens with the shoulders, they drop. She pivots with a head turn and eye fixation prior to turning her body. And look at the relaxation in the arms and the hands. Yeah, it's immediately visible. This is a rare video looking at not just the effect of visual midline shift on weight shift laterally or anterior posteriorly, but particularly looking at the effect of what happens when there's a spatial visual processing compromise on the compression producing increased abnormal postural tone. Just remove the prism glasses <coughs> and watch the tone come back. Oh, there go those shoulders are just hiking right back up. Even increased more than that in the arms and the legs. Now, each time I do a video, although you didn't see it for the first one, I do three times prisms on, three times off. So each one is a um, single design research study. She's gonna come back now and we'll put the prisms back on at least for one more round. So you can see the effects on the tongue. You know, oftentimes I've been in a, a gym where we're doing physical therapy and a person with a TBI or a stroke is standing there and the therapist says, okay, come to me. And the patient grimaces and the therapist has to go over and grab a leg and move it in order to engage movement in order to get the person to move. That's focal binding. That's where the visual system clamps down so hard, it jams the entire motor system and they lack the ability to initiate a step. Think of what's going on in the supplementary eye fields and the frontal eye fields. The initiation is collapsed. Here, um, this woman has the prisms back on again. Watch again the effect on the postural tone. Now, not only is there increased weight shift to the affected side, improved weight shifting, but look at the shoulders, the arms drop. You can see it right in the trunk, the pelvis, the legs. She's using the heel to toe more. There's a heel strike into the toe. 
and she's actually starting to create lateral movement in the pelvis, what I would call weight shift there, okay? So I can keep going with these videos unless you'd like to talk a little bit or ask some particular questions. Yeah, actually one question that I would like to ask uh, that this case brings to mind is the use of torso-based uh, balanced weighting. Um, and so Cindy Gibson Horn and Diane Allen and some others have developed some uh, very specific weighting uh, using a, a, a vest uh, and, and doing postural sway um, and then strategically putting very small amounts of weight that counteract that. And watching her trunk um, tone and how it's changed with the, with the yoked prisms really makes me think about that work. And, and that's another area that I feel is really under under disseminated <laughs> um, and I try to do my best uh, in, in getting the word out there about that, that research and, and, and some of the clinical tools that do exist to look at truncal weighting with severe imbalance. And boy, I, I, it would be really interesting to see that along with the yoked prisms as part of a treatment course for somebody that looks like this patient that you've shared. It would be fascinating research also to get involved with. I'm familiar with the work. I've had limited um, access to physical therapists working with, with the weighted vests and weights, but I believe that it's very important because it's facilitating, um, it's facilitating weight shift and organization uh, into the postural base of support. So one of the things that I, you know, I've been trained to use is facilitated sidestepping and facilitated movement. And sometimes with patients, I put the prisms on and I don't stand them. I just get them in their chair and I just facilitate movement laterally, anterior, posterior, and diagonal movements where I'm in front and I just gently move them just to engage the postural base of support, their, their trunk. If you don't have that with some of these patients, they're still operating on a highly sensory basis of the visual system. So they may not even get an, an effective change from the yoke prism. You've got to engage the motor base of support. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your, your message and your approach with looking at the proprioceptive input and the motor engagement along with the visual system. I, I that really speaks to me. And um, one case that I can share is a woman with um, severe impairment of her peripheral nervous system. Um, she had ototoxic drug uh, and then Guillain-Barre. So just kind of a myriad of things, but really very little vestibular system left, a lot of sensory proprioceptive loss. And this is a person who, though she had pretty bad oscillopsia that her visual system really was her main system to maintain balance. I think she would fall. Mm -hmm. I think at, at, when I met her, she fell more times a day than I think she could really count. Mm -hmm. um, did a very wide basis support, would do back bends and side bends and touch the floor and touch the wall. Mm -hmm. And we did a version of the torso weighting. I call it my garage version because we just did this in the school program that I work with, um, but it made just a profound improvement 
um, which is that motor and that proprioceptive aspect. Mm -hmm. It gave her what she needed to, to make a, a, some great strides. Um, what I haven't had the opportunity to do, and I would love more, would be to have somebody nearby that we could collaborate and the, the prisms, the yoke prisms could be part of some things that we would be able to try for people more often, which um, I'm sure before we're done talking, you'll talk about some of the ways to get in touch with neurooptometrists and, and, and do just that. Uh, I'd be glad to share some thoughts on that, both on screen and off screen, okay. Um, what I wanted to just mention is that oftentimes, um, professionals will look at glasses, particularly yoke prism glasses, and still get the misconception that this is going to cure the patient. And it, it doesn't. It's rehabilitation. It's not vision therapy. And it has nothing to do with vision therapy. I gave the term neurovisual processing rehabilitation, or it was called neurooptometric rehabilitation. Personally, I like neurovisual processing rehabilitation because it broadens the base for interprofessional use, more so than neurooptometric. And it also, I want to point one other thing out, Julie. There are times when I have I have had a patient in today that when she first started coming to me from Delaware, um, she was so dysfunctional. She was hit by a van in a parking lot and knocked 20 feet and had a brain injury. She was so dysfunctional that I could put prisms on her and it only caused more distortion. And what I had to do is work in conjunction with a physical therapist <clears throat> who showed me that I had to have her eyes closed and I had to do facilitated sidestepping, both with her against me, as well as her hands on a wall, with her eyes closed for 10 to 15 minutes at a time, till she could finally gain some type of organization of the proprioceptive base of support before I could ever get to even get her eyes open, even before introducing yoke prisms. So it's critical to understand that our, our audience here to understand that we, we can't negate this proprioceptive system to relegate just now we're going to override it with a visual process. It's like the vestibular system. You know, the vestibular system it is connected into the same proprioceptive base of support in the cervical ocular vestibular triad. And this triad is critical. These proprioceptors in the neck are critical for stabilizing the spatial visual process as well as the vestibular. And particularly when the spatial process is compromised with proprioceptors in the cervical region, the vestibular system becomes very unstable in itself. So this is where I believe vestibular therapists, optometrists, they are practicing neurovisual processing rehabilitation, not vision therapy, working with these prisms and physical therapists need to work together to try to bring our experience and our expertise to stabilizing these systems. And sometimes it's one more than the other or one before another that needs to be done. It's kind of like trying to unlock three chests 
with three keys, but you've got to know the right order. Well, well said. So I have more videos, but I know we're also probably getting close to a time limit here. Um, we're coming up on time. So I think if there's any summary points that you'd like to share, this would be a perfect time. Well, the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association has a fellowship and it's an interprofessionals fellowship. So you don't just have to be an optometrist going through it. There are PTs and OTs, speech therapists uh, that have gone through and gotten a fellowship. It's not a certification in the use of prisms for rehabilitation, but it brings together this dynamic relationship amongst professionals to understand that they must collaborate but it also gives optometrists a greater opportunity to explore the use of yoke prisms. Now I did a 50 hour course um, and uh, we did it at the Shepherd Rehabilitation Center in Atlanta. And I'm very thankful to have been invited down there with my colleague Raquel Munitz, who I've been working with for many years uh, in conjunction with uh, Chris Nelson. And we did this 50 hour course and we're pleased to have videotaped it. So it's on my website for those people that are interested in taking this course. It's, it's a very involved, detailed course about looking at neurovisual processing in relationship to posture, movement, and balance upright against gravity. And if you go to my website called padulainstitute.com, it's under the area of education and it's in three different levels and you have a period of time to get through each of the segments. And if you need more time, it's granted to you, but it enable PTs and OTs and, and optometrists to gain a much better appreciation for how to use the prisms. So I'll, I'll say this, that there are doctors out there that understand this concept and there are doctors that don't. I have, a, I have patients coming in that have been seen by other doctors who prescribe prisms and the prisms aren't correct. So I, I say this because they're all my colleagues, but I want the best for my patients to be working through the physical therapist. So, you know, I'm happy to help you try to find doctors that have a greater expertise that I've worked with in the past. Um, you can make a contact with me at the Institute or uh, I'm also here. I see patients from all over the globe. So if I can help with particular patients in some manner, shape, or form, what I do is I do evaluations with the patients and then try to find doctors in the area that can carry out the rehabilitation in conjunction with um, the rehabilitation professionals in their area. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Padula. This has been informative and fun and uh, the videos are, are very illustrative. Um, I will make sure that we put the link to your site. And um, I know you also mentioned the, the research that you talk about in this um, session is also up on that site, which is really well, really helpful. So thank yeah. you so much. Sure, I have a whole research section there and also a whole technology section. So if uh, the people are interested in seeing more about Neuroptrek or some of the other devices, they can. Very good. Well, until we get a chance to work together again, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. 
For more information on this special interest group or the Academy, visit www.neuropt.org.